Welcome everyone to the Unpacked Podcast, a podcast for operators by operators. I'm Vignesh, a partner at Sierra Ventures and one of your co-hosts. Hey everybody, I'm Arvind and I'm a Jurassic Investor Partner. Today we're very pleased to have an exceptional founder with us who's pretty much in rarefied air having taken his first company public. Thanks for joining us, Steve. Thank you, Arvind, and thank you, Vignesh. This is a great opportunity. Looking forward. So, Dheeraj, I think with every podcast, we try to sort of uh, get into the weeds of you know, learning about the founder, the operator's sort of background. Uh, so, with that as context, maybe we could take a few minutes just to sort of walk us through your journey into the world of being an operator and then getting started with your own company, et cetera, would be great. Yeah, no, absolutely. So came to the U.S. when I was 21. I was barely 22. I turned 22 within a few days of being here. I had joined a PhD program at University of Texas, Austin, computer science. Within a year, I came here to Oracle in Redwood Shores. And I'm like, wow, this is a big internet bubble. This is the time to actually be in the industry. So went back, finished my master's and took a leave of absence and started working in the industry. Worked for Freelogy Software in Austin, Texas for about year, a little more, year and a half, maybe. And literally drove down from Texas to California. I had a fork in the road to either take the right fork and go work for Microsoft in the year 2000. And twice in 2000, I rejected them. I came and worked for a really small company. It was a Vinod Coastal company. He was still at China Perkins back then. And we were building distributed file servers. So the idea of using commodity hardware with software on top, the company was called Zambiel. The internet bubble burst, we hunkered around, we put our heads down and just learned to print code and write software and nothing much came out of the company. We had raised a good amount of money. It was a lot of froth and there was a lot of great lessons. Now, even though nothing came out of the company, there was six, seven of us, uh, just developers, mere developers who went on to create like $20 billion worth of enterprise value from that company. There was like five, six companies that came out of it. Obviously, Nutanix was one of them, but then there was nimble storage and data domain and many of the companies that came out of it. I was just lucky to be in great company back then. We were very ambitious developers who went on to go and do big things over time. Then I came to Oracle for about four and a half years, learned to ship enterprise code, obviously 100,000 customers. I was in the core underbelly of the database, building transactional systems and transactional storage and everything that you can imagine what made Oracle reliable and highly available. but the focus was building distributed databases. And then Oracle had gotten into commodity hardware for the first time using Oracle Exadata. There were some great learnings of shipping distributed systems on, again, commodity hardware. So in 06, I had applied to only three business schools. Like, you know what, I'm going to only look at the top three business schools. And if nothing comes out, I'll go and work and start. So I applied to Harvard, Stanford, and Wharton. And I was 31. Obviously, there was a profile that I fit and I overfit that profile. There was too many files of the same ilk. Engineering degrees and having a very good GMAT scores wasn't good enough. But I got the rejection in early 07, I'm like for all three of them. And I'm like, man, this is hard anyway. But everything happens for a reason. If I had joined a business school in 07 and I had graduated in 09, it would have been the worst time to actually have come out of business school. So I ended up joining another good distributed data warehousing company called Astro Data. Again, commodity hardware, pure software on top. There was this pattern in my career. So did that for a couple of years and 
The global financial crisis had happened and there were three of us uh, who all knew each other. Me and Mohit. Mohit was uh, also with me at Zambia and then Ajit and I knew each other from ID. Kanpur, we were all three together at Astrodata and we were itching to actually apply our intuition to build something much bigger than what was envisioned. But lo and behold, I think the financial crisis was tough on everybody and we said, look, if you have such a gotten intuition, let's go build it on our own sort of dime. And that's what we ended up doing in 09. We quit and we started Nutanix. We knew that it was going to be around distributed systems and pure software running on commodity hardware because that is basically what we had gone on to do for the decade before that. And I said, okay, we're going to manage data, but what's the killer app? And the killer app happened to be VMware and virtual vision. They said, we're going to apply a lot of these principles of consumer cloud architecture to a killer app in the enterprise. And that happened to be Nutanix. It was an 09 again, the difficult times of 09, but we went on to do good things over time. It was a public company CEO for almost five years. And then 2020, I'm like, okay, you know what? Time to really think about the next 15 years. I'd shipped code a lot. we shipped code to 20,000 customers, 30,000 sites. But yeah, we'll talk more about uh, the rest of the journey, but uh, thank you. No, thanks a lot for that overview, Diraj. I guess kind of bleeds into a bit of what we're going to talk next, which is about personal learning. And I think you talked about, you know, how we took lessons from what we've been building before. I guess covers a bit of a concept around taking risks, both as an operator, just a professional in general, could be founder, et cetera. But this notion about taking calculated risks versus, you know, going with the flow. And truly, is it truly going with the flow or is it also calculated? You know, it started Nutanix, now obviously DevRev. Any practical tips for founders, operators around you know, how do you develop unique insights, point of views, or connect the dots mm -hmm. so that it feels natural rather than, mm -hmm. okay, am I, mm -hmm. am I going into the, you know, abyss here? I've thought about this concept quite a bit around risk. I don't think I was an irrational risk taker. There was always mm -hmm. this sort of what I would call the worst case analysis. So what's the worst that could come out of it. And then what I've told myself is that if the worst is not bad enough, you pull the trigger. And that was true even when I was 16, 17. I had ended up at IIT Kanpur for the first time when I was 16. And I really wanted to get to Kanpur. I'm like, okay, I have to get to the Kanpur campus, so IIT. And all I got was civil engineering. And I'm like, I need to get a computer science. Things are happening. This is 1992. And within two months, I realized that the probability of getting into computer sciences higher, way higher if I retook the JE, which is the joint entrance examination, as opposed to me being here and getting perfect scores over the next two semesters. Within two months, I actually quit and everybody around me was like, what, really, are you going to quit? What if you don't make it the next time? And again, my worst case was, I, I just get to send Stephens and do a physics honors and I'll go on to do something after that. So. There was a worst case thinking and my parents backed me up. You know what? Go and do it if that's what you feel you need to do. And it was a good risk. The next year I was in the top 100 and got a computer science. And obviously you look back and say, wow, that's 16, 17, you took risks. But I think that feeling has continued. Actually being at Zambil, while there was a big risk of being in a startup, which would close any day, was also about making sure you continuing and learned and hunkered down and took the risk of being in a startup. It was actually very methodical as well. And, and I was newly married and everything. And one could argue, why wouldn't you just go 
run for the hills and find a stabler job and things like that. But the stabler jobs are also not as stable as one might think back then. And you could see that today as well. The largest companies are the ones who are firing the most number of people because they were so bloated. So it is quite contrary to assume that startups might be a better place to take risks when there is a recessionary sort of uh, feeling in the industry. And I've done this all the time. 09 was like that. I was VP of engineering, running engineering. And I'm like, what's the worst? The worst is you get back into the industry and find a job. That's the worst. I think having that decision tree in which you are very sure about that one fork in the tree that said, this is the worst case and it's not bad enough has been the way I've done it. 2020 was like that. I think I knew that shipping code is actually going to be a less and less of a thing. We ship code to 20,000 customers. We were basically upgrading code twice a year. And I'm like, we need to upgrade code twice a day. And right now we're at the mercy of the customers and it depends on when they want to upgrade software. I couldn't do it fast enough. And if anything, I have a service mindset. So I'm like, I need to serve these customers even more. So and only way to do that is if you actually operate the cloud for them as opposed to shipping code to them. So it was pretty evident to me that the world is headed towards streaming software, streaming infrastructure, as opposed to you having to ship stuff to them. So what was the risk? I'm like, I could be an investor in this company. For the first time, I could think of really decoupling my left brain from the right brain. There is nothing in here to say that I can't go operate some new idea. And it was not a $50 billion idea. It was a $10 billion idea, which is what Nutanix said, but not a $50 or $100 billion idea. I'm like, from here, if I take this and try to apply this to something that made 10x bigger, then I could think like an investor rather than an investor and an operator. And that was, again, a calculated risk. And... I think the worst was not bad enough because we'd gotten a really good CEO at Nutanix to really take that to the next level, to a different direction than what I really wanted to do was to be a service-oriented and to take it to a software-as-a-service, infrastructure-as-a-service kind of level, which is what everyone let me do. I think it's a really interesting story in the way you think about taking risk. I guess the flip side of risk, though, is timing, right? And you got to get the timing right when you do take risk. You caught Nutanix almost perfectly from a trend perspective. The hyperconverged thing was just starting to really take off and you guys like became the leader very quickly in that world. Obviously with DevRev, you guys are doing something really interesting and Gen AI hype is off the rage right now. I'm just curious about how you think about two things. One, which is idea formation. And this is something we think about as an early stage firm, right? We think about prepared mind. Do these founders do their homework on customers or do they just run out and start building? And I'm curious, what's your mindset? Like, how do you think about finding the right idea and finding the right product market fit before you even think about building? Mm -hmm. In hindsight, it looks like hyperconvergence was picking up back then, but there was no such thing as hyperconvergence. It took five years for the turtle to even be coined. I think what we did well, really well, was to build reliable systems and reliable customer service and reliable experience for the customer, which is the thing that's, I think, timeless and probably lends itself well for running a large business. So what we did was we did a lot of the mundane stuff for our customers. And that happened to be called hyperconvergence eventually. We said, we're going to upgrade all software. We're going to take care of not just our software, but the software that runs underneath us and firmware that runs underneath all that. And that's what a cloud is, where it's one click everything. Now we couldn't fight against physics because you have to ship servers and have them buy these things and rack stack mount and cable them. So we couldn't fight that, but everything after that was our problem. 
that is hyperconvergence. So we left shifted everything and we really did an awesome job of designing. VMware will shudder in its pants just thinking about, so what else are going to make so much simpler? And I think that became the rallying cry for everybody at Nutanix to say, hey, we're going to really make everything that simple. And I think at DevRev, we're doing the exact same thing. We're saying, look, business infrastructure is highly fragmented, just like what AWS had argued that, look, why should founders go build data centers? Stitching servers and storage and networks and security, virtualization, databases, and all of open source on top of it. What if we left shifted everything for you and we did all this integration work for you and then you could actually have cooked meat as opposed to raw meat. And I chuckle because I go back to this metaphor of cooked meat, raw meat, raw. Yuval Harari's book, Sapiens, you know, he talks about discovery of fire. He talks about how before fire, our intestines were longer. There were only two sinks of energy in the body, the, the gut and the brain. And with fire, once humans started to have cooked meat, the intestine shrunk and the brain actually grew because now more energy could go to the brain, hence homo sapiens. I think that basically happened 10 years ago in 2011, 2012 with public cloud founders could go and really do things which were cooked meat as opposed to raw meat of stitching things. And that's what we did with hyperconvert. We said, look, if you're going to own infrastructure, let us take care of cooking the meat for you so that you can actually have cooked meat rather than raw meat. And business infrastructure right now, you know, the stitching that everybody does from Intercom to Zendesk to AHA product board to Jira to HubSpot or Salesforce, I like it's a nightmare to do all this. And for founders to act like their IT is just taking them away from the thing that truly matters, which is their product and their customers. So we have basically applied the same principles of let's left shift and let's integrate the mundane stuff for them. And let's bring so much of design that the things have to be simpler, where there are no emails about emails, there are no Slack channels about Slack channels, there are no meetings about meetings. Because, you know, what happens initially uh, is it's simple ideas that founders come up with. All they have is them as a product manager. And then there's a couple of developers, including themselves, and maybe a designer. And then there's an end user. And there's a real-time collaboration that's happening between the end user because they want that customer so badly, that end user and the feedback so bad. That's why Slack took off in the last three, five years in terms of real-time collaboration with end users between the developer designer, the founder product manager, and the end user. And then over time, as you can see, systems start to get added. So you add Jira, you add support systems, you add, obviously, chatbots and you add Salesforce and marketing clouds and all these things. And now you have so many of these clouds, the engineering cloud, the production cloud, the support cloud, the chatbot cloud, the marketing, sales, customer success clouds, and there's clouds galore. Everybody wants their own place to manage work because that's their tribe. And nobody remembers what is the product that you're building? Why are you building so many features and how do you prioritize these things? And who is the real customer that creates them? And we feel like left shifting a lot of this stuff so that eventually it's all about the two things, the product and the customer. Otherwise, AI, as you mentioned, it, it is a hype. It's a thing that's looking for a problem. But if you thought hard about, oh, if you integrate all this thing into a common knowledge graph, product, customers, people, work, users, activity, this is a common knowledge graph. Now AI can be really useful. Because now you can do semantic search of all these things. You can feed them for data warehouses and you can do text SQL in data warehouses. 
because everybody needs that information. A customer success person needs to be as empowered about product and roadmap uh, as a product manager is. And developer needs to know about customer as much as a product manager or a sales rep is. So I think to really take a step back and think about the, the basics of what does information symmetry mean, you can then go and build a very large talking from that, as opposed to taking a solution and applying it to whatever your idea is. There are a couple of things that you said, but I think the oversimplified point that I took away really was both with Nutanix and with DevRev, there's one thing that's very simple. There's a uh, simple concept, do everything for the customer and build really up for the customer. Yes. I know it sounds really simple on the face of it, but it's that's hard, it. right? It's that's really it. hard to build good product and make it really easy for customers. And so I guess the flip side of it is you have to have good people. And with Nutanix and your co-founders were amazing. They've gone on to build some amazing companies as well. Can you just give us a little bit of insight into how you think about hiring people at the early stage to accomplish that mission? Yeah, no, I think it's a great point. I've thought about that too. I've always been fortunate enough to be around people who have been authentic in their own ways. Now, we might have disagreed on things, and that's why everybody went on to do their own thing. The Nutanix Mafia has gone on and created $25, $30 billion worth of enterprise value again. But we all were not fluffy people. We said, look, we're going to have to sell and stick and stay around with the customer as opposed to sell and run, because there's a lot of types out there around things, and you sell and run, sell and some more, create some hype. So I think what has stuck around with me is what does it mean to actually bring authenticity to your culture? And that would mean that every employee of the company cares about the things they do for the customer. And that gets appreciated a lot because the core of building large companies is repeat business. And many companies struggle with this. And there's two things that basically don't happen around these companies. One is they don't build reliable enough products and reliable enough customer service and reliable enough product management. The features have been around, they've been basically dying at the mind. Nobody's taking care of them. So you need to really do that listen well and obviously ship well. But then the other thing is looking around the corner so that your product portfolio is actually a little bit ahead of what this customer would like to have. Because right now it might look like well, it's a want, but how do you make it a need? And this is about adjacency thinking. Okay, so I've built this for them, but if I need to grow with them and make them bigger, what else would they need? And if you ask them, I think, and this is a cliche, but everybody knows that customers are like, oh, give me a faster horse. But you don't realize that now you are the horse that's shipping them a horse. So they'll say, just make this a little bit better. As opposed to on top of this, what else would you need? So I think looking around the corner to know what else would they need in this adjacency map is a very important piece of the world. Because there's no substitute to going and getting more from the same customer. Once the trust builds, once they know that you're a reliable company and you've never let me down. And when things were down, you took care of me. I think that is the fastest and the least expensive way to actually acquire customers. Customer acquisition cost is way lower because it is a known customer. And that's what we did. We did a really good job. Uh, and all the people from the Nutanix, I know they've actually really cared about the customer. And uh, I know it's easier said than done. But I think, as you mentioned, life is actually a lot simpler in terms of what you need to do. Like today, I actually care for those contracts that are taking time to get implemented. 
Yeah, we have 12 contracts. So I'm like, let's focus on them more than we focus on those that we can actually high five and put case study for and them on the website and things like that. Let's look at the anti-patterns and go after them because those are the things that will make us more authentic at the company. I really like the idea of looking around the corner. I guess I'm going to ask you a two-part question here. So I guess the first part of it is one thing that you said was at the earliest stage, all of you guys at Nutanix were not fluffy people and you all have this like genuine passion for the customers and you want people that know how to stick by the customer and, and stand by what they deliver. I think it's a very different mindset for somebody like that versus the, hey, let me think a little bit more strategically, look around the corner, help the customer figure out what they actually need versus listening to the customer and like getting them to tell you what they need. And those things come at different stages. And I guess the question is, are there interview questions? Are there like personality traits? Like, what do you look for at that very earliest stage to get those not fluffy people? And then what do you look for when you start to get to you know, your first 15 customers after that? How do you get the right kind of people that can think through what is the next thing to build? What is the way to scale up your customer service work? How, how do you think about that? Mm -hmm. Like all things life, I think it's a tightrope walk because you're balancing opposites. You're balancing opposites every day. Every day I have to be equally optimistic as I need to be pessimistic. And you're looking for such people. So I think that balance is very, and the more people that you find with such balance, the better it is. Now, most of the people you hire will actually be either more paranoid or more optimistic, but that's okay because then it's your job to make sure that they can work well together. So on one side, you have to go tell them, look, you've got to be a little bit more paranoid. And on the other, you have to say, look, you've got to be a little bit more optimistic. So I think I've always found that to be the biggest job of a CEO or a founder. And if they can't, then they won't outlast their competition and they won't be able to really have the staying power they need to really run companies for a decade or more. I also feel in an interview process, these things come up because typically when I go in an interview, I actually don't know much about their feet. And my job is to go deeper and deeper to just ask the why and the how, as opposed to the what, because a lot of things I'm just thrown at them. What did you do? What did you do? What did you do? As opposed to the why and the how. And again, it's easier said than done to ask those questions. I've sat in, in meetings with uh, researchers on cancer and oncology and just within an hour I've come back like, wow, I know so much more. But because you need to have that knack of basically this adjacent question, the next adjacent question. And even if you might appear to be like stupid or having these dumb questions, what does it mean to do that? And the best people are very good at those. And that's how I've found the best people to really work with. And honestly, people who are not just about I, you also know that's part of being authentic. Uh, it's about we. Uh, I have a really good uh, mentor. His name is Mike Robbins. And he's written books like Be Yourself because everyone else is taken. So he talks about authenticity at that kind of a math level, mathematical level. He said, look on the left of the spectrum is dishonest people. You don't want to work with them. They're slide balls. The middle of the spectrum is honest people. And then he pauses. You're like, wow. So it looks like honesty is not good enough. And he then says, you got to take something out of it and add something to it to really be on this journey. Never be fully authentic, but on this journey of being authentic. So what do you take out of self-righteousness? Oh, just because I'm right means you must be wrong. Oh. And what do you add back in is vulnerability. I might be wrong. And those are the kind of people that would really be with you. And this is equally true for customers and product managers, because you have to listen and you have to teach at the same time with customers too. And you can't just listen because in any new 
big version, a uh, big sort of release. It's got to be your opinion and your ideas and your design. But going from point A to one point two, it's the customer's territory. But they won't tell you to go to auto on your own. You have to do this. So I think there's this thing about yin and yang where you take your conception, your ideas to them, and then you work with them for the last mile is the balance that's required with customers too. Again, a lot to unpack there, but when you started Nutanix, the era was a bit similar from a macroeconomic pressures. I'll be different sort of root causes, but similar. What else do you think is kind of maybe similar or different and is net additive or sort of is making a bit more difficult the whole art of company building? It's a great question. Again, I do believe that the more things change, the more they remain the same. And in many ways, 2022, 23 is like 2009, 10, 11. In the sense that the hype of 07, 08 actually died down very quickly. It was clear that the purse strings were tight uh, between customers and investors. And open source was just about opening up in 09, 2010. So there was ways to stretch the dollar where you don't have to build everything from scratch. So in the build versus buy thing, you knew that you could buy some open source and then build on top of it. And we did a lot of that at Nutanix, a lot. We were the first company to have used Cassandra and Zookeeper for an enterprise-grade file system running Oracle on top of it. Like, who would have imagined that you're running Zookeeper and Cassandra and then there's an Oracle running on top or there's a VMware VM running on top of it or a uh, a virtual desktop running on top of it. I think these things were just unimaginable back then. But we really stretched the dollar. We said, we're not going to build key value stores for the first time. We knew SQL databases would not cut it. We stretched the dollar in, in many other ways back then. Going back to the uh, early use of commodity hardware and how we actually okay, leveraged that, you know, to the core. Building a partnership with Supermicro back then was very important piece of the puzzle for us. Right now, we are really stretching the dollar from day zero in terms of thinking about engineering and the talent between India and Slovenia. From day zero, we were in both these places and got to go that really well. We also knew that POCs have to be shorter, proof of concepts have to be shorter. And the proof of value can only come if migration tools are one click. If you can really go and prove that you can migrate out of the old into the new, you can build proof of value and that trust much faster. VMware invested so much in physical to virtual, we could just point it to a physical machine and just suck it in and boom, here you're running as a virtual machine. I think we've done that at DevRev and we did that really with Nutanix as well. The idea of shipping code faster would only come if they can upgrade faster. So the idea of one-click upgrade was very important to us. We're shipping code really fast at Debra. Twice a day, we are upgrading code right now because we know we have to move at that pace now. I think the customers in the mid-market are still the same customers that we built our company on back in the day because the large enterprise is looking for more proof points. The smaller ones are hurting. The SMBs and the startups are hurting. So where is the Goldilocks? The Goldilocks lies in the mid-market. And these are companies that could do million-dollar deals with you. It was a dirty little secret of Nutanix. So we've done $7 billion worth of software sales in those eight years of selling. About three and a half billion had come from no more than 500 customers. Three and a half billion dollars from 500 accounts. We had a lot of mid-market accounts that were three, five, $10 million customers for us. 
because they want to grow and they're like, okay, I need reliable things. I need vendors or providers who are actually willing to listen. Again, back to reliability and performance. I think these two things people will overpay for reliability and performance. And when I say performance, I don't just mean software performance or systems performance, customer service performance, customer success performance. They'll pay up. And once the trust is built, they're like, man, if it means I have to pay up 30, 40, 50%, doesn't really matter. If you go back to our S1, you'll see that our gross margin in 2012, 2013 was like a mere 20%. We had done some large deals that was stinky, but went from 30 to 40 to 50 to 60 to 70 to now to that 80, 85% gross margin. So you can win the trust back with customers and they're willing to pay off for reliability and performance if you got a foot in the door and really cared for them. And right now, I think it's very similar. You've got to really have this mid-market focus and do a really good job because they will pay up if they like what they see from you. And consolidation was actually just as big a thing because when people are coming out, they're like, man, there's too many of these things that we have around us. Can we actually consolidate stuff? And AWS was basically a child of the era where people want to consolidate and simplify. So the AWS is really a PLG company in the IAS era. People are like, okay, I don't need to really go and do this $200,000 at a time. I can do a $2,000 a month kind of thing. And in the world of SaaS, they will be even more PLG than what we had seen in the last five years. But we are not abandoning PLG, even though the startups are suffering right now. We're like, once this thing is actually opened up again, we will need to really have built this product that was zero touch, built for startups. If anything, we've done that all throughout the last couple of years, even though our revenue is coming from the market. We're like, design and the sense of zero touch, you cannot abandon that right now because this will open up in the next year or two. It typically takes three years for things to recover. Thanks for that, Deeraj. I think I'm going to latch on to the, one of the comments that you made towards the end, which is around consolidation. I think you saw consolidation in that era. And now you're kind of seeing that as well. The budget strings are a bit more tighter in terms of budget allocation. The aftermath of that 2009, 10, 11, maybe. What sort of separated the performers versus the not, right? And do you think we'll see a bit of a repeat of that or are there sort of underlying dynamics that may have shifted that it's becoming harder to tell who's going to really break out? So what staying power is balance between these two sides, short-term, long-term, short-term, long-term, short-term, long-term. The companies that survived our era were the ones who, again, I sound like I'm uh, a broken record, great customer support, good adjacency thinking about product management, just two years out, not five years out, but two years out. Here. And that great customer support, good products, high quality products that are not, you know, crapping out the moment they've released, were the essential things that separated those who really wanted to just stand and run versus the ones who wanted to sell and stay. And it's easier said than done. Being the purveyor of fresh air and good oxygen is not easy uh, because you typically end up in this quarter to quarter thinking like I have this deal I'll show it to the investor the board will be happy and boom within six months what happened we churned a lot of those customers and then you're constantly in this treadmill and this hamster wheel where you're just selling and churning selling and churning and selling and churning compared to those from our era the only two companies that survived was pure and mechanics that's it and infrastructure 
and both are $10 billion companies. It's not coincidental. It's at the end of the day, both of us were known for quality products, good design, and thinking at least two years ahead. So you got to have the midterm and the short term. Nobody at Pure, I don't know of any customers who said they actually build shitty products. And customer support and net promoter score and all these things were equally relevant for them and it was for us. Yeah. So what is the thing that keeps us going is also this platform thinking this time around and thinking about leverage because you talk about what else is leverage because a dollar is a dearer now than it was three years ago, four years ago. Community, interns, marketplace thinking, APIs and web hooks so that you can actually sell and do post-sales work as opposed to everything must come before the contract because you don't want to negotiate with the customer saying, dude, I can't just keep working for nothing. Let's do a contract and then look at my APIs and my webhooks. I can go customize this for you if that's what it takes really to do this. There is a little bit of checkpointing that also happens, but also young people who are post-sales engineers can actually work on those things and they learn a lot about enterprise uh, software than if you just put them in the underbelly of engineering, which is building a little feature of the fixing bugs. Many of these young people are willing to actually go, we call them one CRM engineers, but some phenomenal talent is emerged that is willing to go and really be so agile that your experience once actually learned about agility and speed from them as well. I think that's super helpful. I think you've talked a lot about the customer success side of it. You've talked a lot about the product side of it. And I do think here, your comments around having that staying power, building good product. I think those are all definitely true. The one big difference between today and even 2008, 2009, and definitely compared to four or five years ago, is it feels like the cost of selling has gotten much more expensive. It feels like distribution through channels is a little bit of a lost art these days. You don't see too many companies that do that effectively. How do you think about navigating those challenges with your new company now? Mm -hmm. I've been thinking about this for the last couple of years too. And I feel like Newton's third law, every action is an equal and opposite reaction. It is just as true. I feel like it's just as hard as it was 12 years ago or 13 years ago. I think you just have everything, both demand and supply in sort of equal measures and they've canceled themselves out. They've compensated for each other. Basically, the idea for a seed to become a sapling and basically break through the earth's crust is just as hard. One thing I think I, I forgot to mention was the idea of Gawkner was very key to us 10 years ago. And what do I mean by that? I think it's a proxy for the trust the customers have in you. Because the higher up echelons, the executives, the C-level people who are willing to talk to Gartner from your customer side, they don't do this for a living. They only do this because they know they won't be fired for doing this. So even though one might say about oh, Gartner, but a Gartner. I think Gartner is basically a reporter. They're a messenger of good news or bad news at best. They're not the ones who create the news. They were the ones who report the news. And I've heard a lot of founders say, oh, we didn't take Gartner seriously early on and realized that it's because they didn't believe in news being reporter. And over time, you need to go from mid-market to the large enterprise. You'll need somebody to report your news. 
we were consistently way better than VMware in the magic quadrant. I didn't like the name hyperconverged. I'm like, I don't even know what it means, but I'm like, you don't get to choose your neighborhood. At the end of the day, you just bring the shiniest thing in that neighborhood. That's all we can really do. Pure did the same thing. They were way ahead of EMC because again, customers spoke and they spoke really highly. And I think that piece today is just as true as it was 10 years ago. If you're going up market and you need to really go have this arm's length where your news being important, it has to be done through these analyst forms. And there's only one actually, yeah, Forrester can do a good job, but you need to be in the Gartner's value program and you do a really good job of it too, for people to actually build that level of trust. It brings back memories because I still recall, you know, especially in looking at, uh, say, infrastructure space and who is in that magic quadrant and sort of getting a feel for, okay, so maybe the enterprise buyer is kind of like speaking, you know, because it's a combination of various data points. I guess now a bit of that has kind of shifted, especially when you think about building products on the PLG layer and front of with this whole GitHub notion and a developer community that has built and sort of it's a great segue to let us learn a bit more about, you know, what DevRev is building and how we try to speak to that client base, if I may, and hopefully, you know, sell upwards. But if you don't mind, a couple of minutes around what DevRev yeah. is building. Yeah, absolutely. It's just like the iPhone never competed with a camera or a GPS device or a music player. It just replaced them. That's the way we are thinking about this. So it's not like we are competing with the intercoms of the world or the Zendesk of the world or the AHA product boards or the Jira's of the world. We just feel we have a way better knowledge graph that really will be useful for running a business. Now. You could say, but how do you sell a platform? We don't go sell a platform. If you build this knowledge draft of customers, product, people, work, users, activity. But one could stop short and say, so what do you do with this knowledge graph? That's not product management. That's just vision thinking. He said, we're going to feed this to a semantic search engine, which is where LLMs become really relevant and important, um, customizable for the customer because the product ontology, the customer ontology, the process ontology is different for every customer. So you want to really think hard about semantic search, and you got to think really hard about data warehousing because in the last 20 years of SaaS, nobody bothered about analytics. They're like, oh, that's your problem. We do SaaS. We can't do multi-tenant data warehousing anywhere because cloud data warehouses didn't exist till five years ago. So SaaS companies said it's someone else's problem. So now IT comes and stitches all these six, seven clouds, the engineering cloud, the product cloud, the production cloud, the support cloud, the marketing sales, customer success cloud. And these things are complex and they just take forever and take tens of millions of dollars of people and tools and, and all that stuff. So both semantic search and data warehousing were things like, okay, if you want to build a modern company, you want to build these out of the box. You want to have this delivered to the end customer because the knowledge graph by itself is unconsumable. So yes, semantic search, yes, analytics. And in the last five years, cloud data warehouses have become really relevant and usable and you can build market tendency around them. But we also realized in the last three years that the edge cannot be ignored. So doing analytics with a .db running on the browser will be a great way to not burn a hole for the PLG world because the PLG world needs analytics too. We can't just say, oh, you only get half the features of DevRam, the other half is too expensive for you. So we had to think really hard about micro-tenancy. Yeah, so what do I mean by that? We were not lazy 
in kind of arbitraging, because what do SaaS companies do? We arbitrage a lot of cloud to all our customers. MongoDB, Kafka, DynamoDB, Elasticsearch, Google BigQuery, all these things are arbitraged. Eventually you're putting a layer of software on top of it and saying, can I actually buy low and sell high? Right, with all this business layer in the middle, we said, you're not going to give out a MongoDB collection per tenant because now we run a file descriptor after 10,000 tenants, you won't have hundreds, thousands of millions of tenants to actually really work with. We've got to really be careful with that. We can't give out a Kafka topic per tenant because Kafka cannot have more than 10,000 topics. So what do you do after 10,000? You can't give out an Elasticsearch index per tenant because now you have to go charge them $100,000 for search. Uh, because you can run out of indexes in Elasticsearch beyond uh, 5,000 or 10,000. Same thing for Google BigQuery. You can't give out a project and a warehouse per tenant because now we have to go charge them $200,000 and so on. We couldn't give out a pine cone index per tenant. There was no PLG-based uh, vector database. So we just built our own vector database. No, the hard part is not the vector database. It's the LLMs. And we said, you're going to keep these LLMs configurable where we can switch this uh, using feature flags. And finally, with analytics, we said, look, we're going to do this at the edge. We've got to use the laptop's resources, the CPU, the memory of the laptop, so that we don't have to go and charge them $10,000 a month simply because we're delivering all this stuff from Google BigQuery. So we had to bend PLG from day one into the architecture because you can't retrofit PLG later on. Our budget was 50 cents a month per tenant, 50 cents a month per tenant, not a month per user really difficult goal and we had to do it. We've engineered so much. We talk so much about these things on an everyday basis. It's not even funny. But rather than stop at this, we have this knowledge graph and you deliver a semantic search and analytics. You said, we've got to rebuild the apps. Can't just retrofit AI into an existing Zendesk or into an existing Jira. So we said, let's think through the apps because the idea of autocomplete and the idea of auto-deduplicate and auto-suggest and the sort of verbs that AI can do a great job with, it can be retrofitted in these legacy tools like summarize, rephrase and classify and cluster and communicate and route and attribute and generate. These verbs required a ton of managers in the last 20 years and tons of emails and tons of Slack channels and tons of meetings. He said, this is where AI will shine, but you can't do this with legacy apps. So we said, we're going to build a chatbot. We're going to build a support app. The support app runs on this knowledge graph of customers, product people. And the support app actually gets a lot from this other app, which is the build app. This is how you build software. And the building software is not your legacy Jira. It's the thing that understands the voice of the support people, voice of the end user, voice of the seller. All of that comes in real time. So you know how to prioritize better as opposed to building epics and user stories and projects and agile and all this stuff. In everything I just said in the last 10 seconds, there's no mention of a customer. Realize how bottom up you've been in this world of agile in the last 20 years. So I think bringing a lot of that customer centricity by bringing in that sales record and applying it to a column in your sprint planning becomes really key. And it's easier said than done because CRMs are so expensive that even a product managers in many companies don't get access to it. Forget about developers and tech leads and, and people like that. So we have a third app. So now we have three apps, the support app, the build app. And both of these 
really get a lot of love from uh, the grew up. He grew up bringing sales records and joined them with the way you build software, the way you serve customers. And all without having to spend so much money on CRM. So at the very least, the grew app consolidates your Salesforce licenses and your HubSpot licenses. Because we just use one connection and we get all this uh, sales data and that's required for your developers and your tech leads and your product managers to go prioritize better. And then your support people actually can go support better as well. So that's what we're doing at DevRev. We really, first of all, build a really highly scalable, extensible knowledge graph around customers, product, people, their work, as well as end users and their activity. We set this to a semantic search engine so that you don't have to go have tons of meetings and wait for Slack channel responses for people to respond back because the machine can respond back uh, around the why, the how, the what, the customer and the product and so on. And we built an analytics engine, which is the deterministic side of uh, this probabilistic search uh, piece that AI delivers. Uh, but finally, we said we can just uh, be arms dealer. We have to partake in this war with apps. And the apps really are about replacing Zendesk, replacing Salesforce Service Cloud, replacing Intracoms, replacing Jira. I think the way you describe PLG is very different from the way I think a lot of people think about PLG, which is thing they tie PLG with selling. And you've talked a lot more about PLG from a product design perspective, how you've thought about who you land with, how you get your expand across the organization from a data perspective, how you think about new applications. And I'd like to just understand, A, how do you define PLG, but B, how does PLG ultimately tie into a, a sales motion that allows you to scale? So in our conference, I had to build a picture of this whole thing. We think of it like a Y shape architecture for business where the product in the center, there's two lines that come big there and then there's third line that goes down south. And the product is right here and the true north is the customer. On the left, you have the grow access, the right, the support access, the southbound is a build access. So you build, you support, and you grow. Uh, the confluence of this is the product and the product solves the end user. So this is how this has become kind of the light motif for the company. Even if you look at my avatars and all these apps, it's really the why. And it is a tongue in cheek with started why. Why do we exist? It's for the product and the customer. But when you look at the end user, obviously there's a buyer and the end user, which are two different things, but they've been coming through different routes into using the product. There's a route that starts with website visits. So there's a visitor who becomes a marketing lead, who becomes a sales contact, who becomes a trial user, who becomes a paid user because of sales intervention, who becomes an observed user because of customer success intervention, and eventually hopefully becomes an advocate, but sometimes can churn as well. You realize how much there is that goes on here, where the website ends, where the product begins, and the lines are blur completely to the point where marketing cannot say our job is just do events. Marketing's job is to actually get stuff at the top of the funnel. And the top of the funnel is not a marketing qualified lead. It's like they are using the product. If anything, I feel like PQL is this homecoming of marketing to say, now we have quantifiable stuff. And you, you can still stuff it with noise. And obviously, you can have a lot of noise in PLG as well. But the idea that the call to action is not download a white paper, but start using a product is a great way to really build that sort of bridge between the website and the product. 
and and then everybody cares about product as opposed to I care about website and you care about product. These days, the decisions are on chatbots are also joint decisions between marketing people, product people, and support people. Because everybody has to care about their interface and one has to be really thoughtful about, guys, you're not talking about three different assets here. There's a support portal and that's on a different chatbot and the product is a different chatbot and Website literature is a different chatbot. And the knowledge graph, the documents, the knowledge-based articles, all this stuff is shared. How do you do this in the product? It's no different. So they have to come together for many of these reasons. And that's why PLG to me is not like a downstream business or a sales strategy. I think how you start with the freemium thinking and how do you really think about a website visitor becoming a marketing aid to a sales contact, to a trial, to a paid user, to an observed user. I think this whole thing has to be stitched. And therefore, we've always looked at it as not from coming from six different clouds. There's a reason why people churn so much, customers churn so much, because customer success people have no clue about product analytics. Nothing. It's so expensive. The only four product managers can get access to it. We have to democratize a lot of this stuff for customer success people to feel like they are valuable and they're not just relationship managers and so on. So. I think PLG to me is about design thinking. It's about democratizing data for everybody. And it's really engineering it as upstream as possible as you actually could. Because then you're thinking about customer acquisition costs as an engineering problem. What we told our people is 50 cents a month per tenant is six, six bucks a year. Yeah, we've shifted some marketing into the cloud expenses. I think that's a much better way of thinking about it than we're going to build these heavy uh, products that nobody thought through what the customer acquisition cost is going to be and what the cloud acquisition cost is going to be. And finally, you're going to say, hey, can we do a freemium version of it? No, you can't. Unless you said, I have a budget of 50 cents in AWS per 10. Now I have six bucks a year. I can look at that as if I'm paying Facebook for Uber app downloads. That's the way we think about customer acquisition. And by the way, engineers love this kind of a challenge. Oh, you're giving me a challenge now. And you're bringing me a part of this design thinking around PLG from day one, which is very unique as well. It's not just the sellers, right? So the PMs have to also sell. And they can only sell digitally because they're not enough PMs in any company. So this inside-out way of nudging and asynchronous communication to a logged-in user, they're all very important pieces of the PLG puzzle here that we have to think hard about and make it inexpensive because otherwise these features are not expensive. Just putting a banner or nudge in a chatbot is very hard and it's pretty expensive. People pay up tens of thousands of dollars for these things. I, I feel like PLG is a lot about architecture, not just about the product, but also about the way you look at your go-to-market tools, your customer success tools, your funnel tools, basically the observability of the funnel, and the MDRs, the SDRs, all this stuff has to come together. There was a lot of details in and how you have unpacked the art of PLG. But I think this conversation would not be complete without having talked about scaling of your previous company and sort of maybe the lessons for this new company, Debra. You know, obviously Nutanix was grew to billion fastest. At least that was what was important and the biggest IPO in 2016 at a billion ARR, right? So I think were there sort of go-to-market strategies that sort of were are time-tested that you think that sort of transcends uh, 
into the new company that you're building as well and other sort of things that you could have tapped then but now the infrastructure is better and it allows you to do it maybe cheaper I mean, so there are two questions in there so the idea of segmentation done well is time tested and again segmentation is such an art as much as it's a science it's not engineering yet a lot of crms come in and say oh i just will apply some segmentation that i knew from before it's also a culture thing because you're going to take away parts of the territory and a certain number of accounts from and on a consistent basis you're going to do this across all your reps across all your regions because uh, eventually when a problem becomes too big you've got to really make it smaller and then assign it to uh, that rep i think is a very cultural thing, but also something that requires negotiation internally with all your best reps, sales compensation around that. I think we did a really good job of making sure that our best reps didn't feel like they were getting lost in the system. Compensation wise, we like, yeah, they should make more money. Yeah. Because there is Darwinism built into sales as well. So a lot where the fittest actually comes true even within sales. And you got to make sure that with equity and, and commissions, you really pay out for these people, as opposed to looking at them as cogs. One of the big reasons for the culture at Nutanix was if you were as much of a sales culture, as much of an engineering culture. And these are opposites, by the way. Most companies don't get both right. They get either one or the other. And we had to get both right. And that's time tested. Even in the world of PLG and all this up about how everything's going to turn digital, it's humans and machines. Both of them have to work in tandem. Now for any company to, and anybody who actually postponed it for too long, introducing sales into the culture, suffer. After six, seven, eight hundred billion dollars, they suffer. Or they just stayed SMB the longest time. And then you have to build a hundred products really go after the SME because now the portfolio has to go from five to seven to 10 to 15 to 20 because you're like, I deliver everything to you. I'm looking at Canva right now. They're delivering so much now. They're competing with Notion and Microsoft because they'll stay there as opposed to now we have culture that can go up market. Uh, I think talk on board companies already long, but how they didn't actually introduce sales at the right time because before that, you would scoff at sales. Oh, what would sales do? We are a PLG company. We don't need sales. And then you realize enterprise needs sales because they have less tech-savvy people. They're not people who just want to do everything on their own. They're constantly trying to really avoid churn because they have large customers and they have big fires and all these things are happening on a daily basis. There's so much of this complexity of existing customer base that they need help. And that help is enterprise sales, enterprise professional service, enterprise customer success, all this stuff. So you can't take too long before it becomes, oh, it's too late. Especially once you've gone public, now you're going about yeah, raising or reducing your operating margin. Customer investors don't like it. All of a sudden, you're going from 25% of revenue being sales and marketing to 35%, that doesn't cover it. I think that is this fun balance when you introduce sales and how do you really bring both sales culture and engineering culture together to say, look, both of you need to actually look at each other, the yin and yang of a company. That's time tested. I think what's coming in now, because of the extra noise, because there's so many feature companies that have basically become SaaS companies, uh, that one needs tools. Better observability, better data, better funnel, all this stuff, because that's the only way to compensate for the noise. Selling it just as hard as it was 10 years ago. Uh, now you just have many more companies that probably were features. 
than they were companies 10 years ago. Building a company is much cheaper right now. Starting a company is much cheaper. So you see a lot more noise out there. So I feel like the funnel data, being in the hands of everybody, obviously Slack has helped a lot. But I since see the struggle around Snowflake and Google BigQuery. It's still very clogy and it's very awkward and it's still in the hands of few people. And you still have to go through Tableau team to really get your weekly daily reports, things like that. So sales managers, sales directors, they need to actually be more observant about not just the website visitors. Look, in, in our PLG, we have more than 4,000 of these PLG customers right now. One of them actually has 100x more usage than someone else. And we have not bothered them. You know what? Let them use it. They're still one of those 400,000 accounts or something. I'm like, oh, what are they doing? But it, it's a mere blip in our AWS uh, cost. And I feel like that's the piece that sales needs to get curious. And that can only come if they hang out around the same analytics in the same dashboards that product managers hang out around. Uh, not just look at website visitors and start to do outbound calling, but also to basically be thoughtful about these users who you really want to the next level and see what are the missing if they're not having a sales relationship. That definitely has to be much more important than it was 10 years ago. Well, thanks for that. A lot of nuggets there for the audience, for sure. You do have a section that's called decompress, you know, it's one of the D's in unpack. When do you know that you're done with your mission, broadly speaking, or are you always going to be on? The other question is, how do you, as founder, recharge? I'll start with the second question first. Um, vacations, family, sleep, uh, yoga, humor. I think these things are recharged. Sleep is probably the most important and the most underrated thing out there. In our conference, we're going to give out this aura, a ring and why we sleep book. Because uh, we've got to celebrate sleep. We don't celebrate sleep enough. Now we have seven offices here in Austin, Buenos Aires, Ljubljana, Bangalore, Chennai, now Mumbai. People are trying to work day in and day out. And I think, of course, AI will help because you don't have a peer missing out on, on meetings with a summary transcription. Why do you care about attending meetings where anyway you just be, you fly on the wall. So, I tell people, if you did late night meetings, don't do the early morning phone. There'll be uh, a summary a transcription somewhere you can go read as well. In. So we've got to recharge with sleep. We've got to recharge with, uh, I think, blood circulation that yoga comes up with and the oxygen that you actually do in a synchronized way. It's underrated. Uh, I can tell you how happy I feel after I do my yoga and I have to do more of it. I think family vacations, overspending on vacations, like high-class experience where you have zero mobile for your children. It's all about just going back in time to the historical places and the natural places and all this stuff. So nature, history, all this stuff plays a big role with family. I think that's how I recharge at least. And I don't feel guilty about spending that. And you only do it four or five times a year. But when you come back, you're so busy with work that you're looking forward to the next vacation. That's the only time you don't feel guilty about not having spent enough time with family uh, or missed out that soccer or your basketball or your football practice session or something. And on the mission, I think it goes back to if you have an engineer's mindset, 
there's upstream engineering, which is writing code, being an architect. There's midstream engineering, which is packaging, pricing, all sorts of things around commercializing your product and ton of design thinking there too. And there's downstream engineering, share buybacks and understanding efficiencies and all this stuff. There's all sorts of places where you can actually really use your brains. And some think they're more interesting than others to most people. So you need to know your calling. Are you an upstream engineer, a midstream engineer, or a downstream engineer? And along the way, you'll actually say, look, I think now the business is here where I can actually be an investor, not an operator. But let me go and operate something that is more upstream or more midstream. And look at Warren Buffett, he's 92, Bill Gates, we know Kosla. All these people are relevant and they're healthy because they have a little bit of angst in them about missing out for not knowing enough or not reading enough and so on. So you got to keep reading, you got to keep learning. Honestly, in the last six months, I've learned more than I did in the last six years. Uh, and I feel like, man, I was so good at math back in the day. I could crack math like this. And a lot of it is bad. Systems thinking, engineering, AI, a lot of AI is just math and engineering. You got to bring those brain cells back to outthink the competition. And yet realize that the only way to make money in this era will be still going and being mundane with your customers about their current migration, their current workflow, their current lives and so on. So the Armada mission, design is a timeless mission. The good thing is that in the space that we are in, engineering is a timeless mission. So go and engineer something up here, midstream here. And if you're a great product manager, if you know how to price package to your stuff, do a great job there. Or if you're just an amazing person at efficiency and all that, then go and engineer that. That's your mission. I think that's great, uh, especially the recharging with family. I think the way you framed it is really nice. I think oftentimes that I find myself but go on vacation, you have your phone and your own calls and you're not really getting the, the full purpose of a vacation when you do that. And so I, I think that's a good message for everybody to take away. And I think I speak for Arvind as well when I say this, this, our podcast, like we said, is for operators by operators. And I think the nuggets that you provided are extremely valuable for all the operators that are going to be listening to this. So thank you again for taking the time. I really appreciate you jumping on today. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks Sirish.